This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at Destinations in Olympia. With hopefully with night vision goggles attached, as we go in search of the Northern Lights, please welcome in conversation with Julia Wheeler, Dr. Melanie Windridge. You can hear me. There you, go. Oh, you can now. Good. Wonderful <laughs> to see and to be able to hear each other. Uh, so many of you uh, to, to come along to uh, Melanie's uh, talk and chat. You need to fasten your seatbelts because we're going on a bit of a journey into myth and legend and science and beauty as we go in search of these northern lights. How many people have seen the northern lights? Okay, a few. And how many people are thinking yeah. that they'd like to? Okay, everybody else. Okay, great, Lots fantastic. Well, I'm delighted that um, Melanie's here to be our guide this afternoon. She's a plasma scientist and an explorer. And the way that this event is going to work is that Melanie's going to be our guide to start with. We'll then have a bit of a chat on stage and then we'll open up the floor to questions. So keep those in mind as, as you're listening. So, Melanie, over to you. Thank you. All right. Do we have one second while we sort out the slides? But thank you everyone for coming. It's really a pleasure for me to be here. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, no slides as yet. They're just <laughs> coming, I think. I can't see those northern lights, Melanie. No northern lights just yet. <laughs> so, well, let me, let, while we're waiting for this yes. to happen, let me you, sit, sit, back, sit down back down and let me ask you how, um, what was the initial fascination, if you like, with them? What, what drew you to them? Well, I think it was a combination of two things. So, as you mentioned, I'm a plasma physicist. I did my PhD in fusion energy, but um, the, the aurora is also a plasma. And I was fascinated by mountains and the Arctic, and I really wanted to go to the Arctic. And so these two things really came together. I just thought, well, I can go and study like, the, the physics that I'm interested in, and I can go to the Arctic, and I can see this incredible, beautiful spectacle. So, of course, that like why wouldn't I want to go? That's what attracted me to, to go there in the first place. And, and you're a big believer, I think, in um, science and exploration dovetailing. I mean, yes. we, we've got some great examples of that, really, in our, in our own history, haven't we? Yes, of course. And I do find this really fascinating, the way that science and exploration, they kind of drive each other. And they're sort of the same thing. I mean, science is incredibly creative. You're reaching out into the unknown. You're doing something completely different that no one's ever done before. And so that's very much like um, you know, geographical exploration. It's really the same kind of thing. And the more we learn by exploring, the more we're able to like, feed that in and, and push even further. So I'm really fascinated by science and exploration and how and how they interact, how they perpetuate each other. I think there might be quite a few people in the audience who are wondering what a plasma scientist is and does. <laughs> so plasma is, I'm going to mention it in a second actually when the slides work, um, plasma is its the fourth state of matter, it's a charged gas. And so we just study this interesting, unusual fourth state of matter, that's, that's a plasma physicist. Okay. So. So that looks as if it might now be working. I don't want to preempt, preempt too much. But let's talk then about um, some of the early thoughts that our ancestors or the people who live in that region's mm -hmm. ancestors might have had about the aurora and about how they were formed and what they, what they were 
they were four, I suppose, when they looked up at them and, yeah. and didn't understand the science behind it. It's interesting because there are two sides. So, of course, they had their, dis their, their ideas of what it was or, you know, their stories of what it was. And actually, there's something very spiritual about the aurora. So, if you look in a lot of the old folklore, a lot of the times it is about uh, spirits. They say it's the spirits of their dead relatives, maybe, or their unborn children, or even their enemies. Spirits comes up a lot. So there was a kind of spiritual uh, connection there. But of course, uh, and also there was a bit of fear. A Sami reindeer herder that I met said that uh, as children, they would be cowering away from the Northern Lights because their parents would kind of instill this fear into them. So maybe a bit like thunderstorms. But at the same time, it's something that's very well known. So Again, the reindeer herder said something to me about, well, for us, it's just like the weather. It's like the rain and the clouds. It's just very normal for the people up there who see it a lot. Whereas for us, it's quite unusual. And did some of the same stories and myths and legends and so on um, repeat themselves, if you like, depending on where it was that you, you went on your route? Did you, did you find some similarities? Yes, and that's what's interesting about the spirituality, um, because all around the Arctic Circle, there are many different communities, sometimes very much spread apart, who have these same sorts of stories about them being spirits. Sometimes people say, oh, this is maybe evidence that people moved around up, up there. But also, you you could just say that we feel this sense of spirituality. Even now, when we look to see the aurora, even knowing what it is and how it's caused, it still kind of touches you on a sort of deep spiritual level. So you can understand where that came from. And definitely the polar explorers felt the spirituality as well. Like They used to write in their diaries um, about seeing these things. And often there were like tones of spirituality in there and so you, you can you can kind of understand where it came from i guess it goes right back to that very um that groundedness that as, as humans we we need to have patterns and and stories don't we mm. to try to explain things and, and yeah. in some ways that's no different to science is it no and i think it's it's great to have those different stories oh we've got things okay uh yes it is great that we have those kind of stories. But I, I always remember reading something once in a magazine about uh, the folklore of the Northern Lights. And I think they mentioned a particular story, one of the fin, Finnish legends, uh, which says that the aurora is caused by an Arctic firefox. And as he's running, his tail uh, whips up the snow and these ice crystals are what's causing the aurora. Mm. And I remember that the magazine said something like, um, you know, this is a wonderful, beautiful story, but, you know, actually, the science is really dull. And I thought, that's, that's really sad, because the science <laughs> is spectacular. And I think that the creativity of thought of, of the scientists who could make that leap from, from the Earth to space and start thinking about what was actually happening out there to cause the, the aurora, I think that that's incredibly creative. Mm. And so I think it's a bit of a shame that we say that the science is a bit mundane, where actually it's equally fantastical <laughs> as these old stories. Absolutely. Well, let's hear more about the scientific side now, and let's uh, go this going. back and make sure that... Uh, Excellent. Yeah. I'll give it a go. So, um, where are we? Let's start. Oh, yes, I'm gonna have, I've got a little video that I'm going to show you first, so I might sit back down and you can just watch the aurora. There's some sound. Oh, there's no audio. What's happening? This is, there's music.
No, well, let's just have um, a look at the pole. Well, there's wow. some pretty aurora anyway. Um, it might might get a bit much if there's no <laughs> no music okay. and nothing else. But I'm sure some of you are familiar with um, with these kind of pictures and videos. There is a lot out there at the moment, but I think it's always it's wonderful to see the, the movement and uh, the colours. Although I should mention that the aurora, when you actually see them in real life, it's not usually as bright or as vivid as you see in the pictures. And that's because the cameras that we use are able to absorb a lot more light than the human eye can. Uh, so you may not see it this bright, you may just see it more like a, a hazy uh, colour, unless you're very, very lucky. Uh, but it's still a wonderful thing to see, even if, uh, even if it's not as bright as the pictures. There's a huge diversity, isn't there, in, in the, the, um, the shapes and, and the colours and so on? Yes, and then sometimes that's due to where you're seeing it from as well, so perspectives. So often you see what looks like curtains, like rippling curtains. That's what you're seeing if you're seeing it from a distance, so you're, you're further back. Because the aurora stretches up hundreds of kilometres into the atmosphere. So that's why if you're further back you see this um, curtain shape. Whereas if you're right underneath it, then you're going to be seeing the, like, the twists of the drapes from underneath. So then it's more like a star or an opening. They call it a corona if you're right underneath. So it can be completely different depending on how you're seeing it. Anyway, I'll move on. So, as I mentioned earlier, the aurora is a plasma, and I'm a plasma physicist, and I already mentioned that a plasma is just the fourth state of matter. And you know about the states of matter, you know that we have solids, liquids, gases, and now we have plasma. So a plasma is just the most, uh, well, it's the most incredible, uh, exciting state of matter in the universe. It only exists when there's enough energy in the system to split atoms apart, so electrons move around separately to the rest of the atoms. And you're more familiar with plasmas than you think, because the sun is a plasma, lightning is a plasma, flames, neon lights, all of these things are plasmas that you're really quite familiar with. And then, of course, we have uh, the aurora as well. And so what is the aurora? It's an incredible light show that is caused by charged particles that are accelerated into our upper atmosphere. But today I'd like to, I hope to convince you that it's, although the aurora is incredibly beautiful, as we've seen, I'd like you to hopefully realize that there's so much more to the aurora than just beauty. It's a fascinating subject. And the aurora occurs in rings around the poles, both the North Pole and the South Pole. And this is what we call the aurora zone in the north. So this is the region where we most often see the aurora. You can see that it goes through uh, Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, uh, the tip of Scandinavia and over Siberia. So this is where we most often see the aurora in the north. We can see the aurora in the south as well, so the aurora australis, or the southern lights, is seen in the south. But I think more penguins have seen the southern lights than people, because the aurora zone in the south goes mostly through the ocean, the Antarctic Ocean, and a little bit through Antarctica. So there's not the people there, there's not the history and everything else that the northern lights has. 
So when I was writing my book, I went traveling to many different Arctic locations, finding out about the people, the places, the landscapes, and the stories of the aurora, as well as the science. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about a few of those places quickly now. It's a little bit of a whistle-stop tour, but I'll give you an idea of, of what, I, what I did. So after my first experience, which was actually in Sweden, I went up to Norway to learn more about the culture and the folklore and the early science of the aurora. And, oops, sorry, uh, that little picture was just saying that there's very much a sense of spirituality, as we discussed earlier. And one day I went out with, uh, this is Knut, he's a reindeer herder uh, up in northern Norway. And we were talking about his childhood and his views of the Northern Lights, as I, I just mentioned, um, about the, them being a bit scared of the aurora or that the aurora was spirits. He also said to me something that amused me. He said that when he was a child, the aurora were the natural babysitters. That's what he called them. He said that the parents would tell their children that they shouldn't be home late, otherwise the Northern Lights would come down and get them. <laughs> so this is why they were scared of the aurora. And there were also religious connections. They were sometimes associated or interpreted as visions of God, particularly further south, uh, when the aurora was often seen more red, and it was much more rare to see it further south. And I mentioned that the polar explorers also felt the spirituality. And what's next? Now it's not moving. My clicker's not moving. Oh, yes, here we go. And then I was also learning a bit about the, the early science of the aurora and people like Christian Birkeland, who dedicated their lives at about the turn of the last century to understanding more about the workings of the aurora. So Birkeland was the first pe person to come up with uh, essentially uh, well, a, a plausible explanation of the aurora. He said that charged particles were funneled down magnetic field lines to the poles where they caused the aurora. And he came to these conclusions by braving harsh conditions to observe and measure. He went up to this mountain, which is called Halda. It's in northern Norway, across the fjord from Alta. And on the top of this mountain, he spent the winter of 1899 with three other researchers. And they, they were, it must have been it must have been really, really harsh because it was dark all the time. They were uh, making observations of the aurora outside. Apparently, they had a big barrel that they could sit in so they could look at the sky but be sheltered from the wind <laughs> so they could watch the aurora. Um, but through doing this work, they were able to piece together their theories of the aurora. And there are still scientists now who are work, working to deepen our understanding of the aurora because it's not all solved. That early description that Birkeland came up with is not the full story. Charged particles must be accelerated into our atmosphere. They have to go a lot faster. So there's a lot more that's happening out in space. So we're learning more about the sun and you know, it's a very active active, turbulent sun. We're learning more about its atmosphere and uh, the fact that this atmosphere expands out into space. So we have charged particles flying out in all directions from the sun. This is called the solar wind. And so we and all of the planets sit in this solar wind. And the Earth has a magnetic field as well. It's like a bar magnet out in space. And this actually protects us from the solar wind or this incoming radiation. So the aurora is actually our protection from this solar wind. 
And I'm going to just show you a video next about, about how this works, about what's happening out in space to cause the aurora. So this is a video from NASA. And what's happening here is that the solar wind hits the Earth's magnetic field and it actually opens up field lines on the sun side and it draws them up and over the Earth and they get pushed down behind the Earth into what's called this tail of magnetic field. And the field lines out there get closer and closer and closer together, but magnetic fields can't cross and eventually they get so close that they snap. And that snapping catapults charged particles down the field lines into the Earth's atmosphere where it causes the aurora. And so this acceleration process, this snapping of field lines, is really important for generating the bright aurora that we see on the night side of our planet. And this is all happening in 3D, so of course it gets a lot more complicated. Um, in fact, a physicist uh, that I'm, I met told me it's a bit like magnetospheric Tai Chi. So the, magne the magnetic field, the magnetosphere is doing Tai Chi. I'm going to demonstrate. If you imagine that the sun is over here and we have uh, solar wind, charged particles hitting the Earth, we open up magnetic field lines on the front side of the Earth, drag them over the top of the Earth to the back where they close at the back and then they move around the sides and the whole process can start again. So open, over, close, around, open, over, close, <laughs> around. This is magnetospheric Tai Chi. This is what the magnetic field is doing. You saw it doing. here first. You saw it here first. <laughs> when you're watching an aurora. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to uh, the science of the aurora and it's, it's not all solved yet. I was traveling to observatories up in the far north, um, looking up at, at the sky where they take pictures like this of the aurora. And from looking at these pictures, scientists get a window out into space. They can find out about what's happening further up in space along these field lines just by looking at these pictures. And I also met people who see the aurora a lot, amateur photographers in Canada and in Scotland and in northern Norway. And these people have an incredible understanding of the structures and the patterns of the aurora just because they see them so often. But I also feel that the aurora is our own experiences are important because it's like our connection with the sky and so just being there and being present is also really important. And when I was up in Scotland I also learned a little bit about space weather which I'm not going to go into here but suffice to say that the aurora may be beautiful but it happens because of a huge disruption in our upper atmosphere. And that disruption can cause us problems. It can cause problems for things like satellites or airlines or national grids. So we need to be aware of these things. And so we now forecast space weather. So this is a picture of me at the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder in Colorado. But also that our own Met Office now has its own Space Weather Operations Center. So the Met Office can give you a space weather forecast as well as a terrestrial weather the forecast. So this is getting more and more important. The final thing I did was to ski out across Svalbard uh, in the winter because I really wanted to challenge myself in this environment and I wanted to experience the aurora in the way that the old polar explorers would have done. So I went up to Svalbard, so the, the island archipelago that's halfway between the coast of Norway and the North Pole, and I skied out across Spitsbergen. And we were yeah, skiing, pulling pulks, as you can see, 
guns in case of polar bears. And it was February, so it was winter. The sun had not yet risen fully from polar night, so we didn't see the sun at all. We were just skiing through a milky blue twilight. And it's an incredibly beautiful place, but I have never been so cold in my entire life. Temperatures dropped to almost minus 40. Everything was frozen. Even in the tent, everything was frozen. Sorry, that was, oh, skipping on. I don't know why. Picture of me in the tent. Everything, everything was frozen. So it was, it was a very interesting experience. I'd never experienced anything like it at all. In this kind of situation, it sounds dramatic, but it really does become about survival. I didn't feel, feel threatened at any time, but everything is so focused. You feel like there's no space in your head for anything frivolous or emotional. All you're thinking about is you know, what has to be done, so eating, drinking, skiing, keeping warm, not getting frostbite. These are the things that matter. And so it is, it's a very, very focused time. But it was still enjoyable. I, didn't, I wasn't unhappy. It's just a very different kind of experience. And we did get to see the aurora. This is a terrible picture of, of the aurora. Um, I have a great respect for auroral photographers because trying to take photographs at minus 40 when the batteries are dying, your fingers are hurting. I think I, the reason of this, I've got a little squiggle up there because I think I was jumping around next to the, the tripod to try and keep warm. <laughs> so, you know, that's a bit of a no-no if you're taking pictures, but, you know, it's, it's really, really cold. And uh, one thing I would say is that going camping to see the northern lights is a really bad idea, because <laughs> mostly because you don't want to get out of the tent because <laughs> it's so cold. I remember lying there on the first night in my sleeping bag thinking, you came here to see the aurora. You have to get out and check. And then another part of my brain says, no way, I'm not getting out of the tent. So your priorities completely change when you're out there. Things that you thought were important suddenly aren't important anymore. Fortunately, we managed to develop little routines. We built it into our routine. We did get out the tent once at about 11 o'clock for about a minute every night. If the aurora was there, then we saw it. If it wasn't, then that was it for the night. So it's, it's a really tough way to see the aurora, but incredible nonetheless. And finally, when I was up in Svalbard, I managed to see the total eclipse as well that was there in 2015, which was another incredible experience, like on top of all these other ones. And what was lovely about seeing the eclipse and a wonderful way to end the book is that when you're looking at a total solar eclipse like this, you're seeing the atmosphere of the sun, you're seeing the solar wind, and it's that solar wind which is causing the aurora uh, on Earth. So the aurora really is our connection with the sun. It's the way that our little planet protects itself from the battering of the solar wind. It's just absorbing all that energy in its magnetic field and dissipating it as an incredibly beautiful light show. So what is the aurora? Yes, it's a, a wonderful light show that's caused by charged particles accelerated into our upper atmosphere. But it's so much more than that. For me, it's the people, oh, sorry, skipping the people, the places, the landscapes, and the stories. This is what brings the aurora to life. And this is what the aurora means to me. So it's been a very, very fast tour through the book, um, but it was really a pleasure for me to write that book. I met some incredible people, so I hope you get a chance to read some of the stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. 
So um, I wonder if part of the, the thrill of the aurora, both for you as a scientist and your colleagues as scientists, and perhaps for all of us who, who'd love to see it, mm -hmm. is the thrill of the chase and the mystery and the <laughs> fact that we might see it or we might not. Is that something that you found with the, with the people that you met as well as personally? Mm, I suppose it has to be. Um, I think that it can be very frustrating, the chase, actually. But if, if you could see it all the time, like any time you wanted to, then it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't be as exciting. So I think part of the allure of the aurora is its sort of mystique, is this, the fact that you can't always see it perfectly. Like, even me, I've written a whole book on it, and I haven't seen like the ultimate aurora display. I'm still waiting. I'm going again in Canada and keeping my fingers crossed. But I've obviously seen the aurora. I've seen gentle, I've seen green, I've seen little twists, but I've never seen, you know, the full sky alight, the dancing, really bright aurora displays. So it is just chance, and maybe that's what keeps you going back. So that, that's what you describe as the ultimate ex aurora experience. But realistically, if people are thinking of going to see it, what should they be happy with seeing? What should they feel content with? I think if you see colour in the sky, then that's, a, that, that's good. Um, but you have, to, you have to be out there for a while because your eyes adjust to the, to the darkness. And so you actually see more if you're out there in the cold for hours than if you're in a nice warm house and then you just pop outside quickly and have a look. You need about 20 minutes or so for your eyes to really adjust to the darkness. And it is a very faint um, kind of display. As I said, it's not as bright as you see in the photographs, unless you're lucky and you get one of these really bright displays. So I just say, I, the first time I saw it, it was just a gentle display. It was just nice green arc in the sky, as I said, a bit of twisting. But I felt profoundly grateful. It was just wonderful just to be there and, and see it. So I think to experience it in the landscape, brings a wholly different appreciation to seeing it in pictures and videos. So don't expect it to be so bright. Just enjoy the landscape and the situation of it, because that's a big part of it. And, and where should we go and when should we go in order to give ourselves the best chance? Okay, so this is the big question, and there are lots of people out here, and lots of companies out here I'm sure can help you um, answer that question. But I think it depends on what you... It depends on your constraints and what you want to get out of it too. So there are places you have to go into the aurora zone so go up north high but then do you go to canada or do you go to norway or do you go to <laughs> finland you know there are so many different different choices some of it will depend on your budget you might want to go to a really like luxury remote resort a lodge which would be nice if you can afford it you need to get out of the cities somewhere dark but equally you can go on like bus tours out of a city so from alta we we join tours where they will drive you around depending on the weather to to somewhere, then you're in a van, you have to stand outside the van looking around, um, so you, you could be anywhere. Uh, or you can go, uh, yeah, or you, or you might want to go to a city so there are other things to do, like um, theatres or you know, other excursions. Mm, just in case you don't. Just in case you don't yeah. see it. So Reykjavik in Iceland is really popular for like long weekends because it's a direct flight from London, which is easier than north of Norway, for example, where you've got to change. So direct flight, um, there are also like, other things to do in the city. Uh, there are lots of hot tubs and things like that, which is lovely. So you can have a really nice weekend away, but the weather's really bad in Iceland. So you've got to balance that with, like, you may have less chance of seeing the aurora, but you may have more fun in other things. 
If you're desperate to see the aurora, I would just go for a week to um, northern Scandinavia or to the middle of Canada. Um, if you, the more away from the coast you get, the, the better chance of clear weather that you have. And so if you really want to see it, I'd go somewhere like that for a week. Give yourself enough time for, for the, you to have bad weather and for it to even out. Um, and what about closer to home, Scotland? What? Scotland you can go to as well. I've, um, there, you saw a picture in there of the aurora from Scotland, but that didn't look like that. It looked like a kind of whitish sea fog um, because it was just a very... But that was a very average day. Nothing special was happening in space weather terms on that day. So, yes, you can see things from Scotland, and, and if you're lucky and there's uh, higher energy, a flare-up in the aurora, then, yes, you can, you can see things in Scotland Again, the weather. So it depends on how desperate you are to see them. If you want to just go somewhere and have a chance of seeing the northern lights, but it's not going to ruin your holiday if you don't, then there are lots of options. And what about the time of year? Does that make a difference? Yes, it has to be dark. So if you're going up into the Arctic, it has to be winter because in the summer they have 24-hour um, daylight. So <coughs> you want to be going between about... Uh, if you're further south, then August, so you can catch the aurora in Scotland in August if you're lucky, but if you're going further north, then September is probably better. September to about April, I suppose, is what you're going to be looking for in the Arctic. So it has to be winter. And then, well, you can get into a whole discussion about when's the best month. Um, some people say the equinoxes are better because you've got more chance of seeing a good aurora during the equinox. Um, but other people, like the reindeer herder, so if you want to trust the reindeer herder, he reckons that the January-February months are better, because he says that you see more aurora when it's colder. I think that's because you have more chance of clear weather. Okay. So again, you've got, to, you've got to weigh up all these different things. So geographically and scientifically, why does the equinox make a difference? I think it's because of the tilt of the earth. It's just sort of more aligned into the stream of the solar wind, and so there's more chance of a an opening up of the field lines that, mm. that you saw because that doesn't happen all the time it depends on orientations of magnetic fields and, and things like that but you've got more chance of a, a good connection shall we say mm. at the equinoxes and so that magnetic field that's happening all the time in daylight as well it's just that we can't see it yes so the aurora does happen in daylight it happens all through the summer it just happens we just can't see it and actually there is a little, a little bit of aurora on the day side of the planet as well. It's, it's much stronger at the night side because that's where you're getting that big flare up and that acceleration process. Um, but there is a little bit of aurora that you can see, you could see in the daylight if, if you could see it. And actually from space, you can look down and they can look at the aurora in different wavelengths of light. So for example, they can take photos in UV and they can see that there's a ring of aurora around the poles um, all the time uh, by looking at it in UV. And that's that's useful for scientists studying it because you can study the northern lights and the southern lights at the same time. Whereas in reality, like one's in summer and one's in winter, so you, you can't see them. Mm. Whereas in ultraviolet, you can see them both at the same time. Mm. So the things that you and other scientists have learned from the aurora, the northern lights, what other implications does that have for science more generally? Where else can it, will it have application or, um, or explanation, if you like? Do you mean where, would the, where does the auroral science have uses elsewhere? Well, are there any parallels or, or things to, to have learnt from what we've fairly mm. recently learnt about um, the aurora that can be applied or might be useful elsewhere? Mm. Well, actually, I, I um, was speaking to some researchers last year about 
they're looking at exoplanets, so planets in different solar systems, and even looking for life on other planets, so looking for habitable exoplanets. And uh, some of them are looking for aurora because, as I said before, the aurora is like our protection. So our magnetic field protects us from this space radiation that would be fatal. Um, and so... If you, if you see aurora on another planet, then you immediately can tell that they have an atmosphere and they have a magnetic field, two things which are important for life. So if you look far, far, far away and you see this planet that has aurora, then you could say, oh, that's potentially habitable. I mean, <coughs> potentially, there are lots of other things. But so, yeah, people are looking for aurora on other planets. And the other thing that happens, um, as with anything, you know, when you're trying to solve a big problem or like, you know, something like the Northern Lights, then you actually end up developing technology to help you solve that. So a lot of advances in cameras uh, have been uh, inspired by uh, like astronomers, we say, or people who are looking at the sky, because the scientists say, oh, this isn't good enough, I can't see clearly enough, so they invent a new system or you yeah. know, something else so that we can see better. So a lot of advances in photography. Necessity is, is the mother of invention and Indeed. all that. Okay. Indeed. Um, well, let's get the microphone out. And if you've got questions for Melanie, then do stick up your hand. Maybe it's um, something about the science. There's a question down here to start with. We'll come to you. Maybe about the science or about her experiences, people she met, whoever. What Hi, my name Hello. is Harsh. Uh, do you think uh, that the auroral patterns have any influence for climate change? I mean, you've, you've spoken about solar winds, uh, but like any changes in patterns or says something about climate change? Thank you. Okay, so that's, is there a connection with uh, climate change and the aurora? This is actually something that came up when I was uh, with the, the reindeer herder, actually, because uh, he made comments about a connection with the weather. And he said something about uh, that the, the, they see more colours when the weather is changing. And he also said that, that since the weather's been getting warmer, so climate change, uh, he says that they've been seeing fewer aurora. Now, it made me think, hmm, is there a connection? Because the aurora happens very, very high up. So from about 80 or 90 kilometres above the surface of the Earth and stretching hundreds of kilometres more whereas the weather is all confined to below about 20 kilometers up. So that's quite a big, a big difference. So it makes you think, like, is there a connection? Could the northern lights affect the weather? Um, well, we don't know the answer to that. There are actually researchers who are, who are looking into like, the, you know, the transfer and uh, you know, what's happening, because it is changing the atmosphere up there, so it, it probably will filter down. But at the moment, we can't say if there is a connection with the weather um, or even with, with climate change. Um, however, I think, I think the link that the, the reindeer herder may have seen with climate change is that if the weather's getting warmer and it's not so clear, then you won't see the northern lights because clouds just block the view. Any clouds that are in the way will just block it. So it depends on whether you're talking about what we see from the ground or what's happening up there that could be seen from space. So I'm not sure how climate change would affect what's actually happening, but it could well affect how we see it. But again, as I said, it's still a research um, topic. We don't know. Thank you. That's a <coughs> question up there, over there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've noticed it's the Northern Lights. Is there any particular reasons why you didn't choose the Southern Lights? And do the Southern Lights have as much application for what you're talking about? Thank you. So that question, why not the southern lights? Well, the main reason is because 
there's not the, the history and the folklore and the stories so much in the Southern Lights because it's so much more recent, relatively speaking, that we've actually seen the Southern Lights. It was only really when polar explorers went down there just over a century ago that we first started seeing the Southern Lights. And so, and people don't live down there. Apart from a few people who go on to the Antarctic bases, there aren't people living in the Southern Aurora Zone. Whereas in the North, there are lots of people living up there and have been for thousands of years. So there's much more history and story uh, associated with the Northern Lights, which is why I picked the Northern Lights. Um, also, I would love to go to Antarctica, actually, so I'd very much like to see the Southern Lights, but it's a much more tricky proposition. It's very expensive to get down there, and even in, in winter, actually, because it's dark, like you, people don't fly in and out during the winter, so you'd have to spend the whole winter there, so people would go for probably a period of six to nine months. So it's quite a big thing to go to Antarctica. Um, so that's the, that's the main reason why I did the North. But in terms of the science, the science is exactly the same. So what's applicable to the Northern Lights is applicable to the Southern Lights. Thank you. A question there, and then we'll come to you afterwards. Thank you. Um, my mother spent some of her childhood in New Zealand, and so she saw the Aurora Australis. So she knew what it was like. We grew up in Cornwall, in the country, and, and we were... In those days, children went to bed quite early. But one night, mother and father got us up because the northern lights were visible in Cornwall, and she knew what a beauty it was. And I can remember us standing there in our pajamas watching absolutely extraordinary green dancing lights. And I just, it's the only time I've ever seen them. I just wonder whether it might be possible to find out when they were visible in Cornwall. I love hearing those kind of stories. Um, it's because it's always so special. Like, you remember that. And they're, they're, they're just really wonderful, wonderful stories. Uh, yes, it probably, it probably would be possible to um, have, a, have, a, if you have a guess at, at when that was, because it is, it's much more rare to see them further south. Or even in New Zealand, if you look at a globe particularly, you'll see that um, like, there's a lot of land up in the north, we're very top-heavy. So it actually takes quite a lot of extra energy for the, the rings, the aurora oval, to spread um, as far south as Cornwall or even as far north as New Zealand. It's, it's quite a long way. So it's quite rare to see them at these uh, lower latitudes. But it is, it is possible. But because it's rarer, it may happen, I don't know, depending on the activity of the sun, maybe once or twice a year maximum. And so if you had an idea of kind of when, you know, how old you were as a child, then you probably could kind of look through the records and see when the bigger displays were and when that might have been th that you saw it. Because it is definitely rarer to see them at those kind of, those kind of levels. But there nice. was a question just here, gentleman with the blue jumper. Hello. <coughs> Um, just following on from that lady just said, my mother had the same experience in the Midlands. It might even be the same, the same time, who knows. Um, my question is um, about the speed of the lights, because whenever you see them on films, they're going very, very fast. It's obviously speeded up, but when I, I've seen them three times now and in three different countries, and they're very, very slow. And so why do they show them speeded up when you see them on films and TV? Okay. So why, why are they much faster in films? Uh, that's because of the photography required. So in order to see 
in order for the camera to take a good picture, um, often you will have a, a longer exposure in order to like capture all of that light. Because as, as we said before, it, it can actually be quite faint. And so in order to get like the brighter, better colors, photographers will usually use maybe a 20 second exposure or a 30 second exposure. As, the ca as camera equipment is improving, it's actually getting less and less. And so nowadays, you can actually get real-time video of the aurora, but it's still very new. Uh, so most of the time lapses, most of the, the videos that you see or the films that you see are actually built up from time lapse. So it's one picture, then 30 seconds later, it's another picture, then 30 seconds later, it's another picture. So that's spread up um, you know, because, of that, because of those long exposures. So if you, the shorter the exposure, the more realistic it will be in terms of the speed of movement. So it's just something that's necessitated, if you like, by the camera equipment, as opposed to them speeding it up purposely. Uh, but yes, you're right. It, when you see it live, as it were, it, it is a lot slower, generally. When I watched it, it was the kind of speed that you could see it was changing, but you couldn't really notice it. So if you looked away and looked back, then you know that something, you knew something had changed but it was very, very slow to watch it um, actually move. Unless I'm told that in these brighter, more active displays, you can suddenly get a lot more movement. So it really just depends on like, the energy in the system. Thank you. Question here. <coughs> just a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Daily Telegraph travel exped expedition in Excel, and there was a talk by an old friend of mine, Ian Redpath, whom you know of, prolific author on uh, astronomy about the aurora, and he goes on the cruises to the north and, and gives lectures about the aurora, so maybe there's a career there for you, but... <laughs> but <laughs> Lovely. He, and, uh, I, don't, I don't think they're paying, but he gets a free cruise and so on. And, and he said he'd, he'd been on any number of cruises to the north and he'd never failed to see the aurora, mm -hmm. so that is quite hopeful. Uh, but uh, my question is, um, I asked Ian, uh, I'd see that there's a an entry in very old editions of the Guinness Book of Records saying that the aurora was once seen in Singapore, le less than one degree north of the equator, and he thought that was very doubtful indeed. Uh, what do you think? Well, um, they do ha there have been times when it's been seen very, very far south. Um, maybe Singapore, I'd have to have to look at the globe and, and oh, maybe Let's we can see on here. Um, but definitely places like Florida and Cuba uh, if you have a really, really big event, like a one in 150, 200-year event, it can come really far south. These, by the way, are the kind of events that the space weather people are really concerned about. Because if you get that much energy in the system, as I said, it's a disruption of the upper atmosphere, it can cause a lot of problem for national grids, for satellite operators. So these big like, events are the kind of things that has got the government saying like we need to really look into this and forecast the space weather because it will cost billions if you have like big power cuts or big destruction of, of national grids. So yeah, they're very they're aware of these kind of events, but they are very rare. But yes, they do happen and they they can come that far south. It's crazy really. <laughs> I think we've got time for one more question over there. Thanks. I was interested to hear you'd uh, been to Svalbard to see the lights. I'd um, heard from somebody once that it was actually quite a far north to actually go to see the lights. Is that because you wouldn't normally go there when it's dark enough, or is it actually the further north you go, you've got less of a chance of seeing them? Is there any, you know, north of the main ring? 
Yeah, you're right. Um, so Svalbard and, you know, is it too far north? Uh, yes, technically, it's not too far north, but yes, it is. It's outside of the Aurora Zone the other way. So actually, when you're in Svalbard, you look south to see the northern lights because you're inside the ring. So as I said, it happens in rings around the poles. So there's, there's, in the center, there's just sort of nothing happening. It's, it's to do with the physics of it and the field lines and the fact that they're open in the middle. So you get this opening up and you have this big central area of just open field lines going nowhere into space. So you don't see any light there because nothing's coming down those field lines. It's only when they close again at the back that you start getting accelerated particles coming into the atmosphere. So yes, in the middle where Svalbard is, it's just a big open hole. But they do get aurora during the daytime because of that big open hole. It's very, very faint, so it's hard to see. Um, but when they've got 24-hour darkness, you can, they do study what's called dayside aurora in Svalbard. Um, so it is possible to see the aurora. I would say it's not the perfect location to go and travel to see the aurora, part, mostly because um, light pollution is a big problem if you're going mm -hmm. to see the aurora. You don't want to have bright lights. And in the towns in Scandinavia, the lights are very bright, of course, because they have 24-hour darkness, so you would have bright lights. Problem is, there's also a polar bear risk. So you cannot leave the town without a gun and a guide. So you're a prisoner in this little pool of light. Unless you go out with a tour to, with, you know, somewhere else, then you're not really going to see the aurora from town. It's too bright. So I, you know, sorry people who are selling Svalbard trips, but like, it's not the best place to see the aurora. I'd go somewhere else. <laughs> Thank okay, you. fine. Well, um, <laughs> I would thoroughly recommend Melanie's book. It's a fantastic mix of science and travel, and you've, you've woven your, your own um, excitement and, and research into it. So Melanie's going to be over at the Stanford stand. Do carry on the conversation there. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks for some great, insightful questions. Thank you, Melanie Windridge. Thank you very much. <laughs>